HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Alexa Santos. The Feed Feed is the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. Here on the podcast, we are speaking with members of the hashtag Feed Feed community to hear their stories, learn about their culinary inspirations, and get some of their best cooking tips. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Susan Spungen. Susan is a legendary food stylist, best-selling author, and recipe developer, and she just released her fifth cookbook, which is called Veg Forward, super delicious recipes that put produce at the center of your plate. The book features more than 100 recipes where vegetables play a starring role, boasting maximum flavor with minimal effort. Susan developed all the recipes and captured seasonal content in real time for Veg Forward and shot her own original photography. Thank you so much for being here, Susan. I'm so excited to talk vegetables and all kinds of fun things with you. Well, thanks for having me. Of course. So I have had the pleasure of speaking with many cookbook authors, but I've never spoken to anybody who shot their own photography and did all the food styling themselves as well. So is this the first (laughs) book of yours that you've done that for? Or is this kind of, that's a Susan Spungen thing. You just go for it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, actually plenty of people do shoot their own books, especially bloggers, but I think I'm the first one who um, shot it maybe on their iPhone. So that's really the difference is that it has a very, uh, you know, kind of loose and immediate, uh, intimate feel, um, because, you know, it's really big because of the subject matter. And also when I started, the pandemic was still pretty intense. So I just kind of wanted to just have this be a more independent project and a little bit of an art project. I mean, I have an art background and I'm very visual and I've, you know, been the stylist on many, many shoots. And I just thought, well, I'm just going to, you know, I've gotten pretty good at it for my Instagram. And I thought, I don't see why these pictures can't be in the book. So love that. Hey, might as well. Yeah. And I mean, kudos to you because I know how much of a art form it is to do food styling and photography. And I'm personally terrible at it. So (laughs) I can only imagine like, you know, how much effort went into this. So congratulations. And 
why I guess the subject matter, as I was kind of referencing a bit ago with, you know, it being vegetable forward, how did you decide on that? Well, I mean, in my long career, I've always been a, you know, sort of hyper seasonal cook and always been, you know, very much motivated by what I find in the farmer's market at my farm stands. I get very excited by it, but this is the first time I put this, that idea front and center for the book. In my other books, especially um, my last one, Open Kitchen, you'll notice I have a lot of vegetable forward recipes, but I also have meat and fish. And on this one, I thought I'm just gonna, I just want to do vegetables. And, you know, not, not every single recipe is vegetarian, but the vast majority are. And it's just a way I'm trying to eat more myself. And, um, and I think a lot of people are trying to eat more vegetables and less meat. So this is, this book isn't saying, Oh, here's like, vegetarian dishes necessarily even though they are it's almost like a vegetable book for people who aren't vegetarians (laughs) right yeah and that sounds almost like that's right up my alley because I kind of feel the same way I feel like this happens every summer where I get so excited by like the seasonal produce and the tomatoes and the stone fruit and I'm like why don't I do this more often and you know fall and winter rolls around and you kind of forget about it so with the recipes in your book, are most of them summer recipes or is it kind of all year? No, I have, I have recipes for all four seasons, but the summer section is the biggest, I admit. Um, but in other seasons, you know, there's also, I would say summer has the simplest recipes as well, because I think the less you do to your vegetables when they're so fabulous, the better. Right. Um, so they tend to be quite simple. Um, and other times, like the winter chapter obviously has a fewest recipes, but a lot more cooking, uh, you know, things that are cooked for a longer time and there's more mushrooms and onions and, uh, you know, things that, you know, when you're walking down the produce aisle in your supermarket, I mean, if you live in California, you might get good vegetables all year long, but, and we get California vegetables, of course, in New York and, from other places, but you know, there's not a whole lot that's really grown locally, maybe none. And so you have to be a little more creative and resourceful when you have cabbage and potatoes and uh, that kind of thing. So that, that's what, you know, winter has more hearty dishes and soups and things like that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, I totally agree. It's almost like it feels like sacrilege to like cut open a gorgeous heirloom tomato right now and do anything to it. It's kind of like, could I just eat this like an apple at this point? Well, you could, or you you could make my heirloom tomato tart, which is really, you know, I've seen a lot of heirloom tomato recipes where you're baking the heirlooms and I'm like, I don't want to do that. They're so great fresh. So my heirloom tomato tart is so delicious and it's kind of like a fresh fruit tart where you've got a pastry bottom and then a creamy sort of schmear on it. And then you just lay out the tomatoes like you're making a tomato salad and put olive oil, salt and pepper and basil and it's delicious. Boom. Wow. It's on the cover. It's on the cover. Oh yeah. Those heirloom tomatoes are show stopping every, (laughs) every time it never gets old every year. I know it really does. Yeah. 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 So take me back. We're going to rewind for a bit here. And I was mentioning Mm -hmm. in your intro, some of your phenomenal accolades and you've had an illustrious career, but when did you start being interested in food? Did you grow up kind of really being intrigued by what your parents were cooking or what, when did your passion and love for this whole area start? 
Yeah, I mean, I I guess I just always had a natural affinity for it and a real curiosity for it. I mean, honestly, the first time I saw a recipe in my weekly reader in kindergarten, I wanted to make it immediately. (laughs) I did that. I remember it well. I I was like, mommy, mommy, I want to make this. And I came home and you know, I think it was like a Christmas cookie or something, obviously cookie. Yes. And, uh, and I just, um, all through high school, I mean, actually it wasn't so much that my parents or my mother was a great cook. She was okay. She did, she did a decent job of getting food on the table, but she also worked full time when I was mm-hmm. in high school. So I actually had to help her get the food on the table cause she was commuting. And so she would, you know, get things set up and then give me instructions and I would, you know, make, basically make the dinner, which it was like no big thing. I wasn't interested in it, but it also made me more comfortable, I think in the kitchen. And I also just baked a lot in those days. I was more interested in baking and I baked out of, you know, cookbooks. We had a few cookbooks in the house and I would pick out, cakes and cookies. And I was just always experimenting. So I, I just was very interested in it as a kid. And then as a career, it took a while for it to kind of, um, crystallize, uh, because I really was going to, I thought I was going to be like a fine artist, but nobody told me there weren't a lot of jobs in that. So, Mm -hmm. um, it took some time, but I eventually realized that food was kind of the other thing that I really liked to do. And there was some artfulness in it. And uh, I think I've spent my whole career trying to marry food and art. Um, so, you know, that's eventually it took over. It wasn't like now when young people um, are growing up exposed to, you know, TikTok and the Food Network and all these things where they uh, can learn how to do anything on YouTube. I mean, back then in the olden days before we had the Internet, uh, you know, it was took a lot longer to find out about things and you had to just be curious and ask a lot of questions and kind of find your way. So that's what I did. Well, look at you, look at you now. So (laughs) (laughs) it all kind of worked out. And so, yeah. So, and I think that, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but it sounds like that was a time when, I mean, today you hear of food stylists and, you know, like you were talking about, you styled and shot all your images for your cookbook on your iPhone and pretty much the only barrier to entry, um, in getting into food photography or content or food videos is pretty much just having a phone. That's it. You know, the the technology in our hands, you Uh know, you know, if you have an iPhone, you're pretty good to go. But back when you were kind of coming up, was it like sort of a daunting thing to, cause I personally, every time I've even tried to wrap my mind around like how to professionally food style and, get into photography and all that. It's incredible. Very overwhelming. So was it kind of natural for you or were you kind of, was there a lot of a learning curve or how did that go? Well, food styling wasn't really the first thing I did. I mean, I was, I was cooking, I was working for, for quite a few years. I worked in restaurants and catering and, you know, worked in, in the actual industry for, for quite a long time. Um, And then when I, Eventually, after about 10 or 12 years of being hands-on in the business, I realized that I wanted to try to, you know, get into something a little different. And I was interested in food styling. And then that led, that interest kind of led me to my, what ended up being the seminal job of my career, which was working at Martha Stewart Living. And that, at that job, I was the 
uh, food editor. I was like the, you know, I was in charge of all things food at, at Martha. I had lots of people working for me. And so a little, a part of that job was food styling. It was a very visual magazine. And I really, we got to do great uh, editorial, you know, stories. Now they call them packages, but back then we called them stories and all kinds of fun, creative stuff. So um, that's where like styling, I styling was kind of part of what I did there, but it wasn't the primary focus. And I was like a manager of a lot of people and that, the job grew into that. And then when I left that job 12 years later, that's when I sort of fell back on food styling as kind of a job um, because, you know, it was something that, you know, I could go right out immediately and, you know, command a decent day rate. And so I was just, you know, while I was kind of figuring out my next steps, I was, um, you know, always doing styling and then kind of the movie work sort of came out of that. And, uh, I worked on Julie and Julia and on, uh, it's complicated and eat, pray, love and a couple other things. And, but those are the big ones that everybody knows about. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, you know, I don't like when people pigeonhole me too much as just a food stylist because I've done so much more than that in my life. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I meant to, I can't believe I waited 12 whole minutes of this podcast to ask you (laughs) working on, you know, Julie and Julia and eat, pray, love, because I am so, and I'm sure many, many others are so fascinated by that because you see, I mean, even in, television shows you know people are loving the bear or you know all these shows where it's like the food looks so good but if you're like me and know anything about you know food you know content and how it's made you're like god how did they like how did they do that like it looks so amazing was that yeah tell us a little about that and how like interesting that must have been did it involve a lot of like travel because i know like kind of the Mm. pinnacle of those a couple of those movies you mentioned are like being abroad basically so how how did that work and was that super cool for you (laughs) well yeah i mean my first one was julie and julia and that was um you know, obviously a great honor to work on that. I mean, very quickly though, like the difference between something like the bear, where I think they do an amazing job of, of presenting the food Courtney store does an amazing job of the, you know, creating training all the chefs. And I assume really doing all the food styling is mm-hmm. so to speak that you see. Um, but you know, you have to have a cinematographer uh, a DP that wants to shoot the food. And on, on Julie and Julia, I feel like there were, even though there was a lot of good moments, there were a lot of moments that were missed because that particular DP wasn't that into it, you know? Oh. So, you know, we didn't have like those, a lot of those super close up moments, which right. I feel in film are what really make things like really, you know, sing because the, sure. the food has to act it was i think um eat pray love we had more of those because bob Mm -hmm. richardson was uh more into it and shot things tighter and spent more time with the food shots but i mean of course everyone loved julie and julia anyway and it certainly had its moments but i sometimes was frustrated because i was like oh my gosh i spent all day making lobster thermidor and you don't even see it (laughs) right yeah and i I actually just watched that movie pretty recently and i've seen it a few times but i even just thinking about it as you're saying it i feel like it is a bit more character driven it's more like a wider shot of meryl street making it versus like you don't see like a lot of like knife work or sizzling or bubbling or anything like that you know exactly I mean, yeah, you're working with Amy Adams and Meryl Streep. Like, sure, yeah, let them have. Oh no, no, but we could have 
had we could have had more of that and I think it would have been great to have that but uh, sure. you know no no offense I mean you know I think every it was an amazing first movie to work on and you know I I I think it's a really fun movie and it it marinates well as someone I met in the movie business says about older movies yeah. um but yeah, I mean, we don't, and things have changed in, since 2009 when that came out and just the whole way we look at food and, and I mean, Instagram and, you know, all the sort of food porn moments that we've gotten used to. So the way, the way we sort of um, take in food is, is I think really different now than it was even then. That's actually, that's really true. And I think that even just the the average layman now has a very exactly. good concept of what food porn is and what absolutely like, delectable looking food looks like because you know right. even if you're not into food that much right. if you're not a cook like it's such a universal thing that anybody True. scrolling social media is going to see yeah yep. this type of footage and you don't have to be that dialed into our industry to have a decent sense of like right. what's exactly. going on with all that so right yeah, right because totally we've all been ex- we've all been exposed to so much food imagery right yes so you know the way we take it in i think has changed even in those you know short well it's not that it's 2009 so that's you know already almost 15 years ago yeah. and things have changed so um, you know, I think the bear is definitely state of the art, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no. I mean, and it's like, I, I was born in Chicago and my parents both, when they met, they were both in the restaurant industry there. So everybody I know from Chicago, I also went to school there at Northwestern. So right, right. I have like a fair amount of like Chicago people in my life. And it's like the right. swan song of Chicago. Like everybody yeah. is absolutely loving it. And of course, everyone right. in our industry loves it. It's such a right. like, beloved thing to like bring awareness of that whole life to such a broader audience which I think is super cool and did you ever work in restaurants like in your yeah yeah Yeah? I did okay I did yes I did um I actually mostly avoided like like straight up restaurant work but I worked in like more casual restaurants when I first started out and then my last job in the restaurant business, uh, industry was working as the pastry chef at a restaurant called Coco Pazzo, which was um, pretty well known in its day. And that was like basically, well, I'm dating myself here, but <laughs> 1990, um, it's before you were born, most likely. <laughs> I was born in 93, so we were close. Oh, okay, so you were a little baby. <laughs> um, but we, it was really super popular. A guy named Pino Longo, who at the time had lots of different uh, Italian restaurants in New York, and you know, all the celebrities came in there, and um, that's that was a fun job. It was my last job in the restaurant business, but. We got sort of, you know, lots of press from the New York Times, and it also kind of cemented my relationship with Martha, who I had already met and worked with on a couple shoots. And then I went and worked at Coco Pazzo, and she would come in for dinner, and I would, you know, send something out to her table and go out and say hello. So that that sort of, I think, helped me, like, cement getting my job uh, at Martha, because she kind of knew me, and then she thought, oh, I was this hot new pastry chef, so... Well, um, yeah, you sure were. And that's such a like, <laughs> that's such a vibe. That's such like a biz thing to like send something out and then go exactly. out and have a chat and a drink. Exactly. At the end of the shift. Like that's yeah. such a lovely experience. And that's, yeah, right. I mean, it's like that kind of catapulted you to the rest of your career. Yeah. So it, all, it helped. It helped. It helped while. for sure. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I, it was fun. It was fun working. I mean, you know, restaurant work, I'm, 
as a lot of people who have done it know is can be, you know, not that gratifying after a while. I mean, I think it's a great place to learn. I still, I think it still is. I, I used to tell people who would come to, um, you know, for a job at Martha Stewart living, I would say, if they really had no experience and just went to cooking school, I'd say like, go work, go work in a restaurant, even, you know, and come back, get some real experience. And, you know, I didn't think it was a prerequisite, but I thought it was helpful to someone who had no experience to really just get out there. But I had lots of experience. I worked tons of, um, catering. I worked for a lot of catering companies because I found it a bit more creative than mm-hmm. the, the repetition of restaurant work. And I didn't really want to work on like a hotline. I didn't really want to do garde manger either. And, um, so, I mean, I did, I did like doing pastry a lot. So, um, it was kind of fun and it was my style. It was like more casual, kind of rustic because the restaurant was Tuscan. And, um, so I felt I could be creative with like imagining what New Yorkers imagine Tuscan desserts would be. Um, yeah. So it wasn't because they didn't really have the same kind of restaurant desserts that we eat in Tuscany. They have like bean santo and biscotti and, you know, maybe a little gelato or sorbetto or whatever, but they don't have the same kind of like, uh, you know, component based like dessert plates that, that we have like in three star restaurants, which this was, um, so it was kind of a fun challenge to come up with that. Um, but I didn't stay too long because I got my job at Martha and then I never looked back. And look at you go. And I think that mm-hmm. a lot of people I know who are sort of restaurant, ex formerly restaurant employees who no longer work in restaurants are kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm glad I did it, but definitely mm-hmm. was good to get out of it type. Right. Energy. right. I mean, <laughs> It's a tough industry and, you know, we are hearing so much about it, more about it these days from, and about some of the, you know, abuses that are, that can happen there. They, it's certainly not universal. Not all restaurants are like that. If you find the right kind of place, um, then, you know, I think you can learn a lot. And I think the smaller, the better sometimes with restaurants, because you get to try to do do more different things and not just sitting there picking thyme leaves all day or whatever it is. Cause um, we don't really learn much about cooking by doing that. Right. Exactly. You get so like honed into one station or one like very tiny task. All right. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. 
now you're obviously doing a lot in the name of, you know, writing books and continually food styling and creating content and, you know, contributing recipes to various publications. I guess now that your career has kind of taken this form, is Mm -hmm. it a little, how how do you answer people when they ask like, Oh, what do you want to do from here? Where do you want to go? Cause when people ask me that, I'm like, I don't know. The landscape keeps changing right. like every I year, know. but do you have an well, answer for that? Well, I'm more towards kind of the end of my career. Really. I'm not saying it's ending or it's over, but I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, a young person who's trying to figure out what am I going to be when I grow up? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of already there. So yeah. I'd like to, you know, kind of keep doing what I'm doing. And I'm really enjoying uh, <laughs> making my um, Substack newsletter because that's like after years of working in magazines with big staffs and editors and meetings and discussions, it's really fun to figure out what content you want to give your audience without having to discuss it with anybody. <laughs> Ooh, yes, I know. I love that. It's the best. Just kind of like, this is what I like. This is what I feel like doing. And I don't have to answer yeah. anybody. <laughs> I'll tell you who I answer to. And that is my readers and yes. my audience. And, um, you know, it's taken me like more than two years to kind of get into the groove of writing my newsletter. But now it's become like really like part of my, um, it's part of my every day, my every week activity. Cause I put out like six newsletters a month. Oh, wow. Which is a, a lot. lot. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I know I have to condense that, but you know, I'm really trying to make it, um, worthwhile financially. I mean, it's, it definitely, people have subscription fatigue and it's sometimes a little hard to get them to part with their money, but you know, the paid subscription model is, a way that one can make a living working for themselves, but mm-hmm. it's not easy. And, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a lot of work, but I think it's more that, you know, the, the, the field has gotten more and more crowded. So people have a lot of options, a lot of choices, and there's so much free content that the people, a lot of people are like, well, why should I pay? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I've thought about it doing it myself and I'm like, oh yeah, there's no way anybody's going to want to pay for my content because they can get it for free, you know? So, well, yeah, it just takes time. It just takes time, you know? And I heard David Leibovitz actually on a podcast on uh, everything cookbooks podcast, which I love, uh, yesterday. And he was just saying like, and he's so funny. Like I laugh so many times listening to him, but he said something like, you know, it took him like eight years when he first did his like blog or his newsletter for people to take notice. And he's like, you know, just, just do it and do it for eight years. And then, <laughs> But it is true. It just takes time. Like if, if I check back in with you in six more years, I'd probably say, oh, yeah, my newsletter is doing great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just takes a lot of it takes a lot of time. And even like, you know, just the the websites with the blogs and like getting those up and running and how long it takes for those to become profitable and all that. It's definitely it's a lot of work. And yeah, I, you know, obviously, as you know, now with your having your fifth cookbook out, it's a lot of work to do that too, but it seems Absolutely. like that's something that's very, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but gratifying for you <laughs> to be able to have your recipes in the homes of so many people. But if you could mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about, I guess, how that feels for you to have your, 
kind of your brain children in the hands of so many and like kind of bringing that deliciousness into people's homes in such like a tangible way is that kind of like <laughs> your favorite thing or like well you've kind of you kind of said it all and very well um <laughs> no it, it is my, my my brain children i like that i'm gonna use uh-huh. that i think okay going good forward. But, glad. um yeah i mean a book you know i always say even though i actually never had a baby uh, that have that that having a putting a book out is a lot like having a child because it's so much work and you know it's like you have to go through so much to kind of get it out there and then you think you're never going to do it again and when as soon as you finish because it's so much work but and then you say oh I want to do it again oh boy <laughs> but but I have to say this book was very pleasurable for me to work on and it wasn't I mean the editing process is always hard no matter what it's hard. Um, it always, you know, for first time authors, it's really difficult because there's no way you can prepare someone for how much work it is to just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, sort of tussling it out with the editor to try to make the book, get the book in really good shape. So, you know, there's it's different stages of making a book. And this time, I mean, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. It does get a little bit hairy towards the end because you're like, okay, this is it it's the, you know, it's, it's, it's done. It's go time and you can't make any more changes, but I really do enjoy the process and, um, I'm proud of the book. I think, um, people are loving the book and, um, that does, you know, it is the gratifying is the right word. It's very gratifying. And, you know, I love seeing people make my food and make it successfully too. I think part of the challenge of, uh, being a recipe developer, a recipe writer is to, you know, write recipes in a way with that where people are going to have the, the same experience as you did in the kitchen and be able to recreate the dish as, as closely as possible um, without anything going wrong. And so you're trying to like give people a roadmap and you're trying to give them the best roadmap possible so that they can end up in the same place that you did. And so that that's always my goal. And uh, as you know, there are a million variables that could throw that off and uh, different cooks, different kitchens. But um, and, and of course, I don't want it to be so highly prescriptive either, especially this book. I want people to feel comfortable riffing on the recipes mm-hmm. if maybe they couldn't get you know, one thing, they find another thing and, uh, or just make substitutions. I mean, this is the kind of book that is almost inviting you to make, to riff and to make substitutions. So, um, but you know, I try to think about both the experienced cook and the inexperienced cook when I write, because the experienced cook can no problem duplicate the recipe. The inexperienced cook might have more questions and conundrums and you don't want to get you know have them be in a place where they're scratching their head that's what I always picture someone in the kitchen looking at the book scratching their head what does she mean (laughs) exactly exactly yeah no I think that's that's an underrated part of it too is like making sure that like not only like the beauty of the dishes that you made being there in the book but easily Mm -hmm. replicable and then also kind of leaving that room open for interpretation especially with a book like yours that's so seasonal like say yeah you know I think that I think that's very important and me as a home cook I would definitely appreciate having that in a recipe in front of me that's like 
easy to understand, easy to master, but then also like easy to riff on. So I feel like you're yeah. you're hitting on all the high points. And <laughs> I know that you talked about how it's, you know, important you've been trying in your life to eat a little more vegetable forward with like what's seasonal and, you know, mm-hmm. that whole thing. And obviously some areas of the country have better access to right. local seasonal vegetables than others. Um, I guess right. what are your like easiest top recommendations for folks who may want to eat more in that way, but that's like the most accessible and like easy to make happen type thing. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, you know, you know, the thing is the recipes don't rely on having, you know, heirloom tomatoes. I mean, there are, there definitely are some in the book, but whatever the produce is, I mean, any good supermarket has, you know, almost every single thing in this book. So I think, you know, the, they lots of things are like especially those winter recipes that I mentioned you know walk down any produce aisle and hey I shop in the supermarket I stop shopping in the supermarket in the summer for vegetables Mm -hmm. mostly um but you know the rest of the year I'm in the supermarket buying vegetables and you know the same things that everyone has got access to so um you know, and also, you know, the, the most, one of the most economical things you can do if you have the room is to plant a vegetable garden. And, uh, you know, even if you just grow a few things, but I mean, for people who have the space and the time, um, that's a great way to, to have some control over your food and, and do it, um, you know, very economically. So. Yeah, that's what I want one day is, I mean, obviously, you know, you live in New York City, it's a little difficult to find somewhere with the room for that. But that's, that's sure. my goal one day is to have yeah. the ability to grow my own vegetables. Yeah, <laughs> One day we'll manifest that. <laughs> well, was there anything else important to add about your culinary journey mm. that I hadn't asked you yet? Well, I think, I think we covered all, a lot of the high points and um, it definitely has been a journey. Yeah. And, um, I don't, let me think you have to, I, I need a question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess just what would you tell people who are, you know, maybe curious about your book who, you know, what's kind of mm-hmm. the, the main way that you would summarize it in a way that would kind of make someone think like, yeah, I got to do that. <laughs> I got to get yeah, that one. I mean, I think that the, the, this book and the recipes in the book are, um, you know, I didn't spend too much time in this particular book on stories. And I mean, there's, there's different kinds of cookbooks this days, these days. And I really just wanted to make this one really about the food and, um, uh, you know, and it's more about my stories in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I really just, I think that I wanted to make recipes that were kind of exciting, both visually and other, and taste wise. And, and that were easy to, um, uh, you know, accessible in the way that you could look at a recipe right now and make it for dinner. Maybe you already have everything in the house already mm-hmm. or just a quick shop and, and you're, you're good to go. There's not like a million sub recipes or everything's really streamlined. And there's, I don't know, it's just, I think it's just, um, food that makes you feel happy. <laughs> hey, that sounds like the perfect food that makes you feel happy. That's like exactly <laughs> what I need every day. So I love yeah, that. <laughs> we all do. We all Absolutely. do. Well, thank you so much for telling me all about this and all about your various stories. I'm sure you're, we could talk all day about all the cool things you've done and all the amazing work that you have out there, but it's uh, really fun to hear about your journey and 
everything that inspires you and everything that you've, you know, gone through to get where you are and just, you know, happy to hear about it and excited about your book and excited to excited for more summer produce and excited to use your recipes to get inspired to do that. And then kind of take that with me through the rest of this year as it gets a little colder in a few months. So (laughs) yeah, fall, let's not sleep on fall because fall is like maybe the best time and it starts to be a little bit more diversified in fall, right? When we've got squash and apples and all those good things. And um, anyway, well, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. And uh, thanks for having me on and talking about Hedge Forward. Yeah, love it. It's been a pleasure and a thrill. Thank you so much, Susan. (laughs) Thanks, Alexa. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur, we would love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.